Welcome to the Product Podcast by Product School. Here's a preview of today's talk. So the answer to do I start with supply or demand is almost always start with supply. Just trust me. No, I'm kidding. So why you start with supply, supply tends to have more patience. If you are a business, and I promise you I'm going to bring you more customers, if you sign up for this one thing and it just takes a minute, you might sign up. And I, t- you know, even if I say, hey, it'll take a couple of months, but, you know, just a minute out of your day, okay, doesn't hurt. Supply stays dormant, meaning in many, many cases, it just doesn't go away because the supplier's desire to transact is not ephemeral. However, demand is ephemeral. I want to buy this widget. I need a cab. I need my dog walked. You know, I need, you know, I need to buy random crap on Amazon. You want that right now. You don't want to be told you have to wait three, you know, three months for that. And so before you have demand, you're just going to burn through your demand if you don't have the supply and the right type of supply. And so having supply, dormant supply is a really good way to start. In this podcast, we teach our listeners valuable lessons about product management and transform them into thinking like a product manager. We teach product management, coding, data analytics, and blockchain in 14 campuses worldwide, including San Francisco, New York, and Seattle. You can find more information at productschool.com. Join our Slack community of 25,000 professionals to network and stay tuned for our upcoming events. I could start with something more high energy, but I'm going to start by talking about a personal struggle I've had. And that personal struggle was coming up with a more interesting name for this presentation. Um, you know, as you've probably heard in your, um, for many product managers, failure is an inevitable part of the journey. And I have to admit that I failed at coming up with a more interesting name. However, I found other ways to overcompensate. And given that this is the last presentation of the day and I needed to be a little bit more exciting, I decided to make my slides look much more interesting instead. Yep, there we go. So, boring name, fun slides. That's how I roll. All right, so getting started about me, I know I don't look a day past 15, but I've been in product management for about 10 years now. Um, And I am basically working on my third marketplace right now. And because I've been at a lot of marketplace startups, um, you know, at Amazon, I was not on the marketplace side. I've really been involved on the supply side, the demand side, and at the intersection in the middle, enabling healthier marketplaces. And currently, I'm at YoGov, which you've probably never heard of. And what we do is we act as an interface, a layer between government services and their constituents. So we do things like help people get expedited DMV appointments, um, assist them navigating, you know, with navigating really annoying things like passport renewals and TSA pre-check as well as we also have a network of 1099s 
mostly Uber and Lyft drivers, who actually connect with people who are new to the country or state and don't really know anyone and want to get their driver's license but don't have a car to use. So we actually have a two-sided marketplace um, that's all across California as well as 17 other states right now. We've been around for about a year and a half, and I just joined as head of product a few months ago. Before that, I was at WAG, which is why I originally moved to L.A., and then before that, Amazon and a bunch of other companies you've never heard of, um, all startups. Um, and I'll tell you a bit more about one of those shortly. So if I, if I had to pick one thing that I don't want that I want you guys to remember coming out of this. And what I think was my most salient lesson in marketplace product management is that interfaces are not the same as marketplaces. You can have what looks like a great marketplace, but it's actually just a great interface. A great marketplace is something a lot more deep than a great digital user experience. And I learned this lesson the hard way in 2010. And this slide actually has both interesting design and a more interesting name. Not kidding. So lest you think I am exaggerating about this, let me tell you why I'm not. And this, starts, this story starts in 2008. This screenshot is from this year, but we're going to pretend it isn't. It's 2008, and you need a taxi. For those of you that are old enough to have called your own taxis in 2008, you might remember that it was a pain at best. You, first of all, have to Google the number of your one of your local taxi services. Or if you're a native New Yorker like me, you wait outside in the rain for 30 minutes because whenever it rains, guess what? Everyone needs a cab and you can't get one. And if you do call, you're often waiting on hold for 30 minutes. You're told, oh, a cab's coming in 20 minutes. An hour later, still no cab. You have no visibility to where your car is. You just have no peace of mind that you're ever going to get where you need to go. And... A few of us decided that we could we can solve this. We can build a better interface that gives passengers and taxi drivers x-ray vision and allows them to see where one another is and more efficient efficiently connect passengers with cab drivers and get rid of that really annoying uh, layer in the middle, the disp the phone dispatcher or the standing in the street in you know, pouring rain or snow or five-inch heels or what have you. And so in 2009, we launched something that was not Uber. Um, it was called Cabulous. And it probably, you know, I know it's uh, the design's a little outdated, but it probably looks pretty similar to some apps you've used. Um, we were, you know, the credit I will take, even though, you know, may not be a billionaire, but we were the first to do the cabs on the map thing. Um, however, however novel this experience was, we didn't have payment at the time, but we did have, you know, the whole seeing where the cars are, hitting the button, seeing it arrive, etc. 
The problem with this is that everyone wants a cab at the same time. When it's raining, Friday, Saturday nights, and what's the biggest problem with, with taxis? They're just not enough of them when you need them. And this is a problem that, given that we'd invested and taken a bet on an entrenched, highly regulated industry, it was a problem we could not solve. So while on Sundays at 4 a.m., the app looked like this, on Friday night, when everyone was just trying to get home from the bars, the app just looked like this. That really sucks. And that was the first time user experience for a lot of users. And frankly, there was no feature we could build, no shiny new you know, micro interaction we could add that would solve this problem. This was not an interface problem. This is an underlying marketplace problem. So 2010, I get this email from a friend of mine who saw a job description from a company called Ubercab that was doing something similar to us. And I was like, oh, cool, we have a copycat. That's flattering. And then promptly ignored it for months. Ignored it, forgot about this company for months. You probably know who this is. And so in 2009, a little company called Uber saw what we were doing but saw that we were being myopic and that we'd only solve the interface problem and that the real opportunity was not in the interface, but the marketplace. And 2010, a really similar looking app came out, but behind the surface, the product was actually fundamentally different and the marketplace also fundamentally different because they had the ability to dial supply up and down with no restrictions. And that changes everything. And so, hopefully at this point you can understand why I say this, and also just how close I was, <laughs> how, we, how close we were to becoming Uber had we thought a little bit differently raised more money for the lawsuits, um, and, you know, and, you know, not, um, frankly, you know, they, they beat us at this, and I give it, you know, all due respect, but damn, we were close. <laughs> but it's still a great to have been part of this story, and I'll definitely take credit for having that UX first before they did. Um, so anyway, if you're going to be a marketplace PM or work at a company that is, you know, is some sort of marketplace, even if you're really PMing only on one side, you should know a little bit about marketplace economics. This is going to be probably a bit repetitive to some of you, but bear with me. So marketplaces come in all shapes, sizes, and flavors. For the purposes of this presentation, I'm going to define a marketplace as a platform where there is two types of customers, a supplier customer and a buyer customer. If you're an e-commerce store and you have all your own inventory, you don't really have a supplier customer. Um, that's technically a marketplace, but not the kind I'm trying to refer to, so bear with me. So your marketplaces are probably going to look very different than you might expect. You know about Uber and Airbnb, but the Salesforce app exchange is also a huge marketplace. Google AdWords is a 
massive, one of the most massive marketplaces on earth. And behind the scenes, Amazon has suppliers um, and small businesses that are selling products through their platform. And then you have, of course, companies like Lending Club, where you have people investing and people borrowing. That's also a marketplace. And I'm sure you can think of tons of others that might not look like marketplaces at first glance. All of these marketplaces share the same fundamentals, buyers and sellers. The marketplace is the platform that aggregates both of these sides and enables the transactions between them. That doesn't mean that the payment always goes through the platform, but it enables the two to connect and transact. I'll, and an, another important thing to know is how supply and demand are related and what, you know, how does increasing or decreasing one affect the other? This is going to be common sense, but bear with me. Um, generally, at a given price, your demand is going to change. Although you may have fixed supply or you may not. So let's call it, I have a, a platform where um, people buy and, you know, buy and sell widgets. If I price my widgets at $30, maybe no one wants them. And we have this huge surplus where all our suppliers are really frustrated because no one wants their widgets. There's very little demand at that price. Um, at the same time, if I price my widgets at $10, and everyone wants them because this is the best price ever, you're getting an iPhone X for $10, you're going to have a huge shortage. And guess what? You're going to have some awful PR, really pissed off customers. You're just going to have a nightmare on your hands because of the excess demand and the limited supply. And guess what? You're not Apple. You can't spin it into the best press ever. Don't even try. It doesn't work for most. And so as you might imagine, you have what you're always looking for is the point of equilibrium, which is the perfect trifecta of a price with balanced supply and demand. But what you need to know is that this point of equilibrium is constantly changing, especially if you have an on-demand marketplace where it can change literally every second. And so to get back to my Cabulous versus Uber example, Uber has a shifting point of equilibrium during different times of day, different days of week, surge pricing, the price moves along with along with the changing supply and demand. And again, demand is what really drives this. However, at Cabulous slash Flywheel, there was no point of equilibrium when the times when most people needed cabs because supply ended here. And so you can see when evaluating a marketplace product or a marketplace company or being the PM of a marketplace, you're going to be thinking a lot about how to how to enable this. And, and this is exactly, this is very much related to product management, especially if you're working on an on-demand marketplace, because you're going to have entire product areas that are devoted to chasing, um, chasing, changing equilibrium point 
as well as as well as dialing supply up and down based on how your demand changes. Again, enabling equilibrium is key to a marketplace product, but especially an on-demand marketplace where everything's ephemeral. This is because immediacy is key for both sides. If you need a cab and you can't get one within a few minutes, that's it. You're figuring out something else to do. If you are a driver for Uber or Lyft, you don't want to drive around for hours without customers. You'll find some other way to make money. You need something that, you need transactions that moment, that minute, that day. It's not like Etsy, which is, Etsy, I can, you know, put up my, you know, handmade DIY taxidermy rabbits, and they might not sell for a few months, and that's okay. I'll move on with my life. The day they do sell, that's great. I don't actually make those, but now I kind of wish I did. Um, but... One thing to consider, and as I mentioned this before, the functionality required to respond to these fluctuations are entire product areas. So to give you an example with charts, again, e-commerce, supply slowly decreases. Someone, you know, some logistics person places an order for more supply or gets more suppliers on board. They anticipate when the supply will arrive. Great. You have this modeled out months in advance. This is one day at Uber. All those lines are pricing, supply, demand, and they are changing by the minute or second. And you have entire product teams working on the marketing tools that basically incentivize drivers to sign on when there are unexpected spikes in demand. Maybe they give bonuses or promos. There's no time for a human to think, oh, hey, we need more drivers. Let me go, let me go put up, uh, you know, a promotion today. This needs to happen in a split second. Pricing, surge pricing, there's, it's an extremely expensive, those of you who are technical, um, the infrastructure to do something like surge pricing and calculate what the pricing needs to be is, it's an immense, I mean, that's an entire company in itself. And then also on the demand, being able to give customers transparency as to when they can get a car for how much, um, that alone probably has dozens of product managers on it. And all of that is doesn't even affect other parts of the customer experience. It's just to be able to maintain equilibrium. And when this breaks down, company loses millions. As you can see here, it broke down during New Year's Eve a few years ago, and it was a disaster. And I would guess that there were several, several million dollars lost and many, many angry people. So say you are at a startup and you are launching a marketplace and you want to know, like, where do you start every, you know, everyone always talks about the chicken and the egg. Do you start with supplier demand? And there are some best practices that are, again, not one size fits all, and there are exceptions, but there are some tried and true approaches that work, whether you're building a marketplace on top of an existing platform, like at Salesforce, or a brand new marketplace you're building from scratch, like WAG or Flywheel or YoGov. So the answer to, do I start with supplier demand, is almost always start with supply. Just trust me. 
No, I'm kidding. So why you start with supply, supply tends to have more patience. If you are a business, and I promise you I'm going to bring you more customers, if you sign up for this one thing and it just takes a minute, you might sign up. And I, t you know, even if I say, hey, it'll take a couple of months, but, you know, just a minute out of your day, okay, doesn't hurt. Supply stays dormant, meaning in many, many cases, it just doesn't go away because the supplier's desire to transact is not ephemeral. However, demand is ephemeral. I want to buy this widget. I need a cab. I need my dog walked. You know, I need, you know, I need to buy random crap on Amazon. You want that right now. You don't want to be told you have to wait three, you know, three months for that. And so before you have demand, you're just going to burn through your demand if you don't have the supply and the right type of supply. And so having supply, dormant supply is a really good way to start. And another way, I'll get back to these two bullet points is in single player mode. And what that means is you build a product that is actually useful on its own. It doesn't necessarily require the other side of the marketplace, whether it's around demand or supply. So a good example of this is actually Airbnb. Um, when I first signed up for Airbnb to you know, rent out my room and offset my New York City rent, there weren't really people looking for rooms on Airbnb. What I used Airbnb for was to generate a Craigslist posting because they had really good tools to do that, to generate a fancy new Craigslist posting that went in the Craigslist vacation rental section because that's where people were looking at the time. And that's why I signed up because that's, what I, that's where I thought people would find me. Um, that was a really clever way for them to get a ton of supply without having the demand. Another one, start with a niche and start with community. What did Amazon sell its first few years? One thing. Not books. Programming books. One type of book. Yes, then it was all the books. But before that, it was just a single niche. Other ones, start with community. A really good example of this was Twitch. Twitch is something that really started from, you know, really started by having a tight-knit, authentic community that where there was both a lot of trust and a lot of tribalism, but from but the it created such an addictive experience and really scratched, you know, a lot of the deep, I think, psychological needs of its users that generally when people start using it, they never, you know, they never rarely left. And there's something really powerful about that, even if you're even if your supply and demand is tiny. Your next one, which is, you know, okay, you've, you've gotten a little bit of supply, you've gotten a little bit of demand, maybe you haven't yet, but what do you need to plan for? And also, I think uh, where this comes more useful is if you're thinking of joining a marketplace startup or a marketplace company, even a larger one, how do you evaluate it? How do you evaluate whether it's going to be big one day or if it is big, whether it's defensible? There are a few principles you can use. The first one is network effects. So more simply, that means, you know, you've heard of this with Facebook, you know, the power of the network. But a simple way to think of this is 
does the 1,000th user to sign up have a significantly better experience than the first user directly because of the other 998 that signed up in the middle? So, so a really good example of this is Yelp. Your first person to ever post or read a review probably had a shit experience, but you know, once there were a number of people on the platform, number of reviews, the experience was wildly different for the people that signed up afterwards. New experience versus the status quo. A really good example of this one is Open Table. Um, and also, we talked about these taxi and rideshare apps. They wildly change the experience of, you know, getting a car or um, making a restaurant reservation. And by doing so, they expanded the market, which is another point I'm going to make. People make reservations more often. People take cabs or rideshare cars more often. Heck, there were no rideshare cars before. They created new markets or expanded existing ones. And that's, and that's something that you definitely want to look for, ideally. But you can still have a great marketplace that doesn't do that. Another one is transaction frequency. And also... Another, and also another one I'm going to mention is monogamy, and I'll get to that in a sec, what that means. Transaction frequency is really how often do people use it? Do they use it once every three years? For example, they buy a home and then they never come back. You can still build a healthy marketplace. Zillow, Redfin, they exist, but the demand is constantly churning. So... It's just a very different type of marketplace. But also, for example, with things like finding a doctor or dating, you have other challenges because people want monogamy. When you're looking for a pediatrician, you don't want to look for a new one every day. It's not like taking a cab. And so the supplier may have high frequency, but for the consumer, you may have low frequency. But either way, there needs to be a sustainable model there, and frequency is one way to evaluate it. Another one is economic advantage versus the status quo. My favorite example here is Upwork, formerly known as Elance. It creates economic advantage for both sides. Let's say you need a programmer to build you an app. Now, instead of hiring someone in the U.S. for tons of money, you can hire someone who's just as good in China or India or Mexico or wherever to build you that app. And all of a sudden, this creates opportunities for, for people in those countries and career opportunities that they might not have in, you know, the physical cities, states, countries they live in. And so there are huge economic benefits for both sides. And again, also, these have also enabled them to expand the market because many people would have never considered hiring a contractor without the economic advantage that this enables. Another one is a technology value add. Um, you know, an Uber or an Uber or um, trying to think of another on-demand or a TaskRabbit couldn't have exist existed 20 years ago because the technology wasn't there. Even, you know, we talked about real estate apps, Zillow. Zillow takes advantage of the ease of getting data from tons of real estate data sources that may not have been available or easily accessible 20 years ago, and thus enables a value add over the status quo. 
So now I'm going to move on to metrics. Hopefully, I have a few minutes left. Most of you who are working PMs or aspiring PMs have probably seen these, um, probably familiar with them. These don't go away. They're still completely valid in marketplaces. And you're still looking at a lot of the same KPIs, except now you're looking at them on two different sides. If your acquisition is awesome on the buyer side, but terrible on the seller side, well, you haven't nailed acquisition. What's challenging about marketplaces is you have to get it right twice on all of these things, not just once. So you can call it doubly hard, but oftentimes the opportunity is tenfold as far as size. Also, there are different, there are different metrics and different KPIs that you might not be as familiar with that are pretty unique to marketplaces. And they are just as important to know as any of these. And if you're interested in ever working at a marketplace, you may want to familiarize yourself with these more. So liquidity, liquidity is basically, you can think of it as a lack of friction to transacting. So it's basically the percent of per potential transactions that are filled. So for example, if I'm a seller, let's call it a, I'm a Uber driver, how likely am I to get passengers. If I want a ride, how likely am I to get a, not just to get a ride, but get a ride at a price I'm willing to pay and at a wait time that I'm willing to tolerate. Same thing for the driver at a payout that I'm willing to expect and with a, you know, driving time that I'm willing to tolerate. And oftentimes you can tell the health of a marketplace or how well it's doing, or even just, you know, its progress if it's a new marketplace by looking at the liquidity. I already mentioned this example. GMV. This is really gross. You might think of this as gross revenue. It's pretty similar. It's basically the amount of money transacted through your platform. And your take rate is the platform's commission on that, if there is one. So, for example, at Airbnb, maybe, I don't know, they probably take around 10 or 15% of each transaction right now. At um, YoGov, when we connect, uh, when we connect um, road test takers with cars and drivers, we take a percentage as well. WAG, for dog walkers, takes about 30 to 40%, right? This is public information, it takes about 40, 30 to 40% of the transaction value when you walk your dog, when you get your dog walked. And so GMV and net revenue are really the two big financial numbers you're looking at as far as how successful your marketplace is. Then you have a marketplace like Amazon where the margins are razor thin, but the volume is massive. And that's how they're able to still get net revenue. You also want to differentiate contracted versus delivered GMV. And what that means is that a buyer and a seller can agree to transact before the transaction actually happens. I might agree to have my dog walked in a week, but with WAG, I don't get charged until the walk is complete. And so what that means is you might have a million dollars in deliver, in, sorry, contracted GMV but only 800,000 in delivered GMV. And, that's, and that can be a huge difference because that, that makes your cash flow wildly different. 
And it means you can't reinvest that extra 200,000. Um, another one to know about is density or concentration. And what this means is, you know, how, what is, how, how many, um, how many customers do you have on each side that could conceivably transact with each other? So you can think of this um, geographically, you know, you want an Uber, how many, how many uh, drivers are around you? If you are an Uber driver, how many potential passengers are around you? But this can also, it's not just geographical. You can think of it as categories. If I want to sell obscure taxidermy on Etsy and there's no one who wants to buy it, you know, then it's low density, even though there are tons of buyers on Etsy. However, if I want to sell, I don't know, what do people like buying? Custom, like wedding invitations or something. Um, there's way higher density there because there are a lot of people looking to buy that. And so you always want to be thinking about category, density, geographical density, et cetera. So the last thing I'm going to um, talk about is marketplace PM jobs. We already talked about this a bit, but what do I need to know for which job? And here's the thing. It varies wildly based on your product area and the size of your company. You want to know enough to evaluate the company's strategy um, and also know what matters for your product area. But that could actually mean knowing very little about the economics. Um, going back to Uber, this is a screenshot of their open product management jobs. You have, you have jobs uh, like the product manager for trust and safety that really doesn't need to know their face from their ass when it comes to the economics. But they do need to know a thing or two about how to make people secure as customers or suppliers. But then you have product manager, marketplace rider pricing. This person needs to intimately understand the relationship between supply, demand, and how to get equilibrium, as well as all the technical you know, implications and constraints that come with that. Um, so, however, if you're at a startup like WAG, which I was, I was on all the sides. I was working on the supply side and then shifting gears to the demand side and then looking at the pricing side all in a day. And so you, it's up to your discretion based on your interests, et cetera, to determine which parts of marketplace product management you really need to dig into more. Are you looking to work at a YoGov or an Uber? Anyway, um, I believe that is the end for me. Um, so thank you very much, and please feel free to come say hi and let me know if you have questions or even if you just want a fast DMV appointment and you want a discount on it. That's cool, too. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Product Podcast. If you liked this episode, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. If you want to know more about our courses and next courts, visit productschool.com. Stay tuned for the next episode to learn more about the secrets in product management.